On July 27, 1890, Vincent van Gogh was shot. Despite a fatal stomach wound, Vincent managed to make his way back to the Auberge Vue Hotel in the town of Avers-sur-Oise, where he'd been living and working for the last few months alongside Dr. Paul Gachet. When Vincent stumbled into the hotel, Dr. Gachet was summoned immediately. Despite the doctor's best efforts, an infection spread, taking the life of the 37-year-old Vincent van Gogh within 30 hours. Plagued by deteriorating health and the loss of his brother, Theo van Gogh, an art dealer and champion of Vincent's work, died six months later at the age of 33. Two of the most important members of the European art scene were dead. Vincent left behind roughly 900 oil paintings, along with hundreds of drawings. He completed much of that work in the last few months of his life, including one of his most revered works, Portrait of Dr. Gachet, the very doctor who had tried to save Vincent's life. One hundred years later, almost to the day, in May of 1990, this famous portrait sold at auction for $82.5 million, or $154.5 million in today's money, making it the highest price for a painting sold at auction until 2006. It remains one of the most expensive painting sales in history. The buyer, Mr. Ryue Saito, made a famous request to have the painting cremated with him upon his death. When he died six years later in 1996, conflicting reports placed the painting either destroyed or with another collector in an off-the-book sale. In 1999, the Metropolitan Museum of Art sought out the new owner to borrow the painting for an exhibit. They quickly found conflicting leads, dead ends, and a single consensus. The painting was gone. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find previous episodes, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. Some of you have been asking how you can support Gone. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review online. Today, we'll be looking into Vincent van Gogh's Portrait of Dr. Gachet. Vincent spent his short but incredible art career in the pursuit of what he saw as the perfect modernist portrait. Expressive, gestural, and transcending the bonds of pure representation to something that pierced the soul and reflected the spirit of the sitter and the time. Portrait of Dr. Gachet is the fruition of that goal, a true masterwork. It's also representative of Vincent himself, heavy, dark, and deeply anxious a triumph wrapped in tragedy and isolation. While this painting has been famous for a long time, it caught the public eye in 1990 after its new owner, Ryoe Saito's claim that he would have the painting cremated with him when he died. Saito was the last known owner of the painting. However, there are no records that the painting was burned. 
There are also no records of whether the painting was sold or passed on as an inheritance. In fact, no one has seen it since its move to Japan in the early 1990s. There are three theories as to where the painting went. First, Saito may actually have had the painting cremated. Second, Saito sold it off the books, something that was increasingly common after Japan's economic downturn in the 90s. And finally, the painting was stolen, which was too great an embarrassment for Saito or his heirs to publicize. Still, it's strange for a painting this famous to remain missing for over 20 years, especially with multiple museums conducting global searches for the piece. Just like Vincent, this painting was gone too early under strange, tragic circumstances. Something definitely isn't adding up, but let's start with what we do know. Vincent van Gogh was born on March 30, 1853, to an upper-middle-class family in the Netherlands near the Belgian border. He was the oldest of six siblings and very close to his brother, Theo. Theo was four years younger than Vincent, and the brothers exchanged letters for most of their lives. We don't know as much about Vincent's early life. However, some of his sister's memoirs mention that he was a quiet, sensitive boy, inclined towards solitude, and had a fascination with things like flowers and bugs. These interests later showed up in his painting. Vincent's odd choice of clothing and reclusive nature led to his being noticed as strange even at a young age. He struggled socially, a trait that haunted him into adulthood. However, he was a decent student and attended boarding schools. Unfortunately, this education was expensive and unstable. In 1868, 15-year-old Vincent was forced to quit school and return home, likely because his family couldn't keep up with tuition costs. In 1869, at just 16 years old, Vincent moved to The Hague to work for the art firm of Goupil & Company as a junior clerk. Vincent's work life was ultimately even less stable than his education. However, like school, Vincent initially excelled. While he was just an entry-level clerk, the job exposed him to all sorts of 18th and 19th century artwork, as well as reproductions of famous pieces. Copying masterwork was one of the best ways for painters to get started, so building a personal library of artists was essential to Vincent's later success. In 1872, when Vincent was 19, he began regular correspondence with his brother Theo. Shortly after, Theo took a position similar to Vincent's at another branch of the company. This, too, was an early foundation for Vincent's future art career. Theo would be the art dealer who helped push Vincent's work in the art world. According to their letters, Vincent initially enjoyed his work at Goupil and Company. He seemed to like his tasks and enjoyed praise from his superiors. However, this period also established the overarching patterns that would define Vincent's mental instability, obsessive working patterns, and poor interpersonal relationships. Modern researchers believe Vincent had bipolar disorder. He was prone to throwing himself entirely into his work or friendship, and then just as thoroughly becoming aloof, depressed, or otherwise disengaged. This caused his relationships and jobs to shrivel up and die. As early as 1873, Vincent wrote to Theo that walks and smoking a pipe were good remedies to the suicidal thoughts he sometimes battled. Still, the job was good for Vincent and his development. 
It provided him structure and meaning, as well as opportunities to travel and work in world-class art centers like London and Paris. Things were going well for Vincent. He enjoyed his job, and his art interests were starting to take root. But then he met Eugenie Loyer, his landlady's daughter. Influenced by his readings, Vincent thought it would be a good idea to declare his love for Eugenie by proposing. When it was revealed that she was secretly engaged to someone else, he pursued her anyway. Due to his social ineptitude, Vincent's pursuit of Eugenie didn't go well. The rejection was crushing. Vincent's letters grew increasingly depressed, and he spiraled, turning toward alcohol and suicidal thoughts. After taking time off without telling any supervisors, he was fired in 1876. He was 23 years old and had been with the company for six years. He threw himself into religion, something he swore would give his life meaning and save him from his melancholy. However, the sermons he wrote were scattered and incohesive, and he expressed frustration with others for not understanding him. This isolation was a constant struggle. Vincent spent the next two years trying and failing to establish himself in the theological world. Like he had in the art world, he alienated others with his strange social behavior. He enrolled and dropped out of various programs, repeatedly claiming that their requirements were too rigorous or not in alignment with his personal brand of religion. This commitment to his own view of the world was a characteristic he never lost. During this period, Vincent was drawing more and more. He made some of his early portrait sketches, and his lifelong connection between meaning, morality, and art was born. This new pursuit slowly replaced religion. By 1879, Vincent's attentions were turning away from religion and into art. He was 26 years old. For Vincent, this was a logical progression. He wrote to Theo, with evangelists, it is the same as with artists. Vincent had found the spiritual communion he was looking for in art. This was the beginning of his true career. However, he still worried immensely about meaning and belonging. In one of his letters to Theo, he wrote, How can I be of use in the world? Can't I serve some purpose and be of any good? He sought to answer these questions in his painting. Theo, meanwhile, had been quite successful at Goupil and Company and was climbing in the art-dealing world. Vincent wrote to Theo for advice on supplies for studying art, and Theo furnished these along with some money to live. By fall of 1880, Vincent was fully dedicated to becoming an artist with financial backing and familial support. At 27 years old, he was considered old to begin pursuing a career in the arts, but Vincent had never let societal expectations stop him. This was the beginning of the intense, tragic, and incredibly lonely 10-year career of one of the greatest artists ever to live. Vincent fell hard for art, and he was very good at it. Even in his early days, teachers and artists noticed his talent and were happy to take him on as a student. From 1880 to 1886, he began working in earnest on portraits, which would become the focus of his career. Vincent tapped into old work contacts to expand his learning and became absolutely fixated on painting peasant life. In one of his moments of clarity and enthusiasm, he wrote to Theo, quote, 
Diggers, sowers, plowers, male and female, are what I must draw continually. I have to observe and draw everything that belongs to country life. I no longer stand helpless before nature as I used to. While Vincent's art was blossoming, his love life and mental health were not. He had several more failed, unstable romances, each leaving him devastated. He continued to fight with his family and alienate other artists and resources. He suffered from alcoholism, depression, suicidal thoughts, glaucoma, and syphilis. Needless to say, his life was not an easy one. With every sadness, he threw himself more deeply into art, slowly developing his unique style that blended Dutch lighting, impressionistic color, the gestural simplicity of lithographics, and the flat compositions of Japanese prints. Vincent was truly a visionary, but also truly a sad soul. In 1886, at the age of 33, Vincent moved in with Theo in Paris unannounced. While the initial arrangement was strained and caused problems for the brothers, the move was crucial for Vincent's artistic development. It was during this time Vincent, through Theo's art contacts, met his famous contemporaries such as Monet, Pissero, Gauguin, Seurat, and more. Their impressionistic and post-impressionistic approaches helped him to find his style, as well as gain notoriety among peers in the art world. Vincent even began appearing in shows alongside his more famous contemporaries. This was unheard of for such a green painter who had started working so late in life. Unfortunately, his moods and health continued to be a problem. Theo wrote to his sister that, quote, It seems as if there are two different beings in him, the one marvelously gifted, fine and delicate, and the other selfish and heartless, end quote. After three years, Vincent's health, both mental and physical, had declined severely. At 35, Vincent decided to move to Arles in the south of France in the summer of 1888, hoping to get healthier and paint more. He began churning out art at an untenable pace that left him tired and rattled. Now isolated from his community, he was lonelier than ever. After a few months, his good friend Gauguin came to visit him in 1888. While the arrangement held up for a few months and led to some excellent painting for Vincent, it soon deteriorated. In December 1888, the two had a violent conflict, and Vincent had a hallucinatory episode that he blacked out. This was when Vincent famously lost his earlobe. Traditionally, the story attributes Vincent's lost earlobe to a mishap with a razor during his breakdown, possibly during an epileptic seizure. More recent work suggests he challenged Gauguin to a duel, and Gauguin accidentally injured Vincent in self-defense. Either way, Vincent lost his earlobe and was soon hospitalized in Arles. Vincent left the hospital the following month in January 1889, only to find himself back at the institution in February after another violent hallucinatory attack. Some of his artist friends visited him during this period, including neo-impressionist Paul Signac. But the attacks grew more frequent and took quite a toll on Vincent. He was finding it harder and harder to live on his own. It was this need for companionship and care that would lead him to the house of Dr. Gachet, a place where he would not only make one of his greatest paintings— but also meet an early and tragic end. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. 
And now, let's continue the story. By spring of 1889, Vincent van Gogh decided to do a three-month trial stay at an asylum in Saint-Rémy. He hoped that the facility would help him manage and recover from his attacks, as well as give him the support and solitude he needed to truly focus on his work. And he did find success there. He worked intensely on developing his portraits and even painted one of his most famous masterpieces, Starry Night. Vincent's typical obsessive pace was not good for his health, though, and he had multiple major breakdowns. Sometimes during these breakdowns, he would eat paint, which is toxic and only made him sicker. After these episodes, Vincent would take around a month to recover and then return to his unsustainable production pace, which would typically lead to another breakdown. Despite Starry Night's success, Vincent still obsessed over perfecting his portraits, not so much as landscape and still life work. In the fall of 1889, he created his famous self-portraits, approaching his mature style of iconic, even spiritual representations of the portrait sitter. It was the same approach he would use in the portrait of Dr. Gachet just months later. While he was at the asylum, Vincent's work was beginning to succeed in a big way. Although he was not able to attend, Vincent showed work in the Paris World's Fair in October 1889, where he received positive reviews. At the next Artiste Independent show in Paris that spring, Claude Monet deemed Vincent's work to be the best in the show. Monet was no stranger to Vincent's struggles, asking famously of his friend, quote, how could a man who has loved light and flowers so much and has rendered them so well, how could he have managed to be so unhappy? As Vincent succeeded more and more, he longed to leave the asylum. However, Theo thought that leaving Vincent unsupervised was a bad idea and was working to find him a caregiver. In the meantime, Vincent continued to paint at rapid rates. In May of 1890, one year after he entered, Vincent left the asylum to visit Theo, his new wife, Johanna Bonger, and their newborn baby boy. Theo had made arrangements for Vincent to go stay with one Dr. Paul Gachet in Auvers-sur-Oise, closer to Paris, hoping that the supervision would allow Vincent to function outside the asylum. Dr. Gachet had been recommended by fellow artist Camille Pissarro, who had used him in the past. In fact, Dr. Gachet had treated a great many of the artists in the Parisian circles, including Cezanne, Daubigny, and Guillemin. In addition to his medical work, Dr. Gachet was an amateur painter and generous patron of the arts. Theo hoped the doctor would help encourage Vincent's art while taking care of his health, and Vincent was amenable to the plan. Vincent arrived in Auvers-sur-Oise in May, just two months before his death. He was 37 years old. Vincent was not immediately sold on Gachet. He wrote to Theo, quote, I think that we must not count on Dr. Gachet at all. First of all, he is sicker than I am, I think, or shall we say just as much, so that's that. Now, when one blind man leads another blind man, don't they both fall into the ditch? End quote. However, just two days later, he wrote, quote, I have found a true friend in Dr. Gachet, something like another brother. So much do we resemble each other physically and also mentally. End quote. This was not just Vincent's impression of the man either. 
Dr. Gachet had written a thesis called Etudes sur la Mélancolie, or Study on Melancholy, earlier in his career. It seemed the two were a natural match. Dr. Gachet and Vincent shared a love of painting, intellectual and emotional pursuits, and their own struggles with depression. Vincent painted, avoided having any breakdowns, and, according to Dr. Gachet, seemed to be improving. Vincent had, perhaps, finally found the combination of companionship and mental health support he needed. In his time with Dr. Gachet, Vincent continued to work on his primary goal as an artist, creating portraits that not only captured the physical likeness of a sitter, but permeated into their soul and reflected on the greater state of society at large. He created three portraits of Dr. Gachet during his two-month stay, in addition to 70-plus paintings of other subjects. Impressively, Vincent sometimes completed multiple paintings in a single day. The first of the three portraits of his doctor became the famous Portrait of Dr. Gachet. The portrait shows Gachet with a deeply melancholic expression, leaning on his right hand in despair. His arm is propped on an orange table adorned with flowers and a few yellow books. The books are known to be heavy, wistful stories, and the gloves are thought to represent a form of treatment for depression. In typical Van Gogh style, the background is heavy and oppressive, made up of layered greens and blues and small undulating brushstrokes. This gives the background a quality of moving, encroaching in on the sitter in a smothering way, thus adding to the feeling of oppression and despair. Dr. Gachet is clearly recognizable by his features, though stylized enough to not be photorealistic, especially given Vincent's complex and vibrant use of color. Dr. Gachet wears a yellow cap and a dark blue suit with a black collar and large brass buttons. They are treated with the same heavy brushstrokes. The effect is that Dr. Gachet feels weighed down by everything around him, the way Vincent often described life. Vincent couldn't be happier with the painting. Shortly after completing it in mid-June of 1890, he wrote to Gauguin, quote, I have a portrait of Dr. Gachet with the heartbroken expression of our time, end quote. He also wrote his brother Theo, quote, I had to paint him like that to convey how much expression and passion there is in modern heads. That is how one ought to paint many portraits, end quote. For Vincent, this was his greatest accomplishment as a painter. He had successfully combined traditional forms with enough gesture, color, and expression to make a truly new type of portrait that captured the essence of the human condition. His contemporaries agreed. Portrait of Dr. Gachet was a masterpiece. But the legacy of the piece was just getting started. For Vincent, this painting represented the culmination of his work on portraiture. But for the world, the portrait of Dr. Gachet would launch into infamy. Not just because of its artistic prowess, but because of the tragic circumstances under which it was created. On July 27, 1890, one month after finishing the portrait and two months after his move to Auvers-sur-Oise, Vincent headed out to paint in the early morning. When he returned that afternoon... He had a gunshot wound to the chest. He had walked over a mile back to town and needed immediate medical attention. 
While the bullet missed any vital organs, the irritation from walking combined with internal damage caused a nasty infection in the wound. Dr. Gachet jumped to his patient's aid, working tirelessly for over 24 hours to save the artist. It was no use. Vincent died 30 hours later on July 29, 1890. It's still debated, but Vincent's death was called a suicide, despite all the progress he'd been making with Dr. Gachet. He was 37 years old. The world had lost one of the most promising artists to ever live, barely 10 years into his career. Theo was devastated. He came to be by his brother's side in his last moments, but there was nothing he could do. As an act of mourning, he put together a show of his brother's work. Their art friends attended and paid their respects. Everyone was stunned. They had lost their friend and their contemporary to the darkness that he had fought his entire life. Theo himself was suffering beyond the devastating loss of his brother. Complications of syphilis were making him increasingly ill, and six months after Vincent, Theo passed away in January of 1891. Most of Vincent's artwork had gone to Theo, which meant that now it all went to Theo's widow, Johanna. Johanna dedicated her life to upholding her husband's legacy and promoting the work of her brother-in-law. She loaned Vincent's work to various exhibits and began selling it, both of which helped to elevate his status. Vincent may not have had strong success during his life, but that was more a factor of dying early than his art being unappreciated. Johanna helped to ride what Vincent and Theo had built, continuing to promote Vincent's work and cement him in the Western art canon. In 1897, Johanna sold Portrait of Dr. Gachet. It was one of the first of his pieces she was able to sell, likely given its incredible quality. The sale began the painting's long path to the collection of Ryoe Saito and subsequent disappearance. Just seven years after the first sale, a German art dealer purchased the portrait in 1904, adding to its value as well as increasing its international scope. In 1911, 20 years after it was painted, a German museum acquired the portrait. The painting hung there proudly for a decade until it became endangered. In the 1920s, as the Nazi party rose to power, they began an assault on modern art, or as they like to call it, degenerate art. The idea of degenerate art largely grew out of Hitler's obsession with attaching Germany to what he saw as the narrative of great European heritage, which for him meant old masters and more traditional representational art. All the experimenting and search for human truth Van Gogh and his peers were so fond of, and famous for, were seen as treasonous, communist, and Jewish, everything Hitler wanted to destroy. The Nazis began removing all so-called degenerate art from public museums and national collections. In 1933, the museum holding Portrait of Dr. Gachet hid it in order to protect it. Had it not been for the people willing to protect the art and culture of those under attack, we would be without huge pieces of our history, including Vincent van Gogh's entire body of work. Unfortunately, in 1937, the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda confiscated the painting, intending to destroy it. 
But something stopped even the Nazis from destroying this painting. Maybe it was the painting's fame. Maybe it was the hauntingly human expression on Dr. Gachet's face, or the profound sense of melancholy Vincent mesmerized the world with. Whatever it was, even the Nazis saw value in this painting. Instead of destroying the piece, Nazi leader Hermann Göring sold the painting to Franz Koenigs in Paris, likely off the books and away from the eyes of Hitler. Koenigs was a German banker and a renowned modernist collector. In 1939, Koenigs transported the painting to New York, saving it from Nazi destruction by removing it from Europe. Once in New York, the painting ended up in the custody of Siegfried Kramarski, a German-American banker and art collector. He was also Jewish and had fled to the States to escape the Nazi regime. For many Jewish art collectors at the time, protecting art from the Nazis wasn't just about saving the art. It was about defying the cultural massacre and ethnic cleansing assaulting their homes. The painting remained in the Kramarski family for the latter half of the 20th century as Van Gogh's work continued to rise in prominence and scholarship, with the family often lending the painting to museum exhibits. In 1974, Johanna's son, who is also Vincent's nephew, opened the Van Gogh Museum of Art in Amsterdam. It is still dedicated to sharing the work of Vincent and his contemporaries. Major museums, including the Musée d'Orsay in France, exhibited Vincent's work, and art historians poured over his unique style and life. Schoolchildren from the U.S. to Japan could recognize his work. He was officially one of the most important artists of all time. And his favorite piece, the crowning jewel of his career, was about to get a lot more famous. In May of 1990, Almost 100 years to the day of Van Gogh's death, the Kramarski family put Portrait of Dr. Gachet up for auction at Christie's Auction House. While everyone expected it to do well, the painting ended up selling for $82.5 million, making it the most expensive painting ever to be sold at auction until 2006. It remains in the top 10 most expensive paintings of all time, the buyer was a wealthy Japanese businessman named Ryoe Saito. Saito was 74 at the time and had been an avid art collector for more than 40 years. He was also the owner and former president of Japan's second largest paper manufacturing company, Daishoa Paper Manufacturing Company. Saito was essentially new money. His family had been penniless after World War II, and his father had built this company from the ground up. Maybe he saw affinity with Van Gogh, who had been penniless and rose to be one of the great masters of painting. Saito was well known for showing off his money and had been an art collector for decades. He had a particular taste for post-impressionists, which made Van Gogh a perfect match. Saito saw the portrait of Dr. Gachet when it exhibited at the Metropolitan Museum two years earlier in 1988 and fell in love with it. He was reportedly drawn to the haunting look of Dr. Gachet and loved Van Gogh's intensely expressive and neurotic work in general. Maybe he saw himself in the troubled, successful man. Or maybe he just liked that the painting stood for the crowning achievement of a truly remarkable career. Either way, he had to have it. 
When Saito found out the portrait was going to auction, he told his buyer to get it no matter the cost. He expected it to set him back $30 million. That cost turned out to be nearly three times that. That was no deterrent for Saito. He was thrilled with his purchase, and it didn't hurt that he now held the world record for the most expensive piece of art. Saito loved that kind of notoriety. Two days later, Saito also bought Renoir's Omolan de la Galette for $78.1 million. He now had over $150 million invested in two paintings. This was exorbitant, even for the skyrocketing art market of the 1990s. It made Saito look reckless, powerful, and untouchable. That was probably why Saito wanted everyone to know just how much he spent on these paintings. He published it wildly in news articles across the world. He also bragged that he planned to build a new exhibit for the Van Gogh at an art museum close to his home in Japan, where people could come admire it the way he wanted them to. Saito was also known to casually drop how expensive the taxes on these paintings were going to be annually and how he'd just have to keep making more money to keep up with them. He was incredibly proud of the amount of money he was sinking into his art collection. The annual taxes on the two paintings alone were $24 million. This may have helped motivate the purchase, as Saito claimed in an interview that he didn't want to ever slip off the top 30 list for highest annual taxes in Japan. He wore that rank as a badge of honor. Then, in the spring of 1991, Saito made one of the most sensational claims the art world had ever heard. To this day, we don't know whether he followed through with that claim or it was simply in jest. What we do know is that the unknown whereabouts of Portrait of Dr. Gachet force us to consider that Ryoe Saito may have actually burned one of the most famous paintings of all time. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now let's continue our story. In spring of 1991, after purchasing Renoir's Omolan de la Galette and Vincent van Gogh's Portrait of Dr. Gachet for exorbitant sums, businessman Rioé Saito claimed that he wanted both paintings cremated with him when he died. The art world was in an uproar. Who did this businessman think he was? He couldn't just burn two masterpieces because he wanted to. Could he? The Japanese government, which was still very sensitive about its international image after World War II, was not happy with the backlash against Saito and pressured him to apologize publicly. In May of 1991, the New York Times ran a short article stating that Saito had previously threatened to cremate the paintings and that he now rescinded that statement, claiming that he did not intend to destroy the artwork. It's not clear if Saito really was committed to not destroying the paintings or if he simply said it to calm the public. He claimed that the statement was meant to be a joke about the high taxes. If the paintings were burned, there would no longer be taxes on them for his children to inherit. However, this clashed with his previous narrative of pride at the high cost of the paintings. Still, Saito claimed the uproar had caused him to realize how valuable the paintings were and that he was planning to move them from storage to a museum where they could be cared for properly and shared with the public. 
For the time being, the concern about the paintings being burned quieted. It seemed that Saito was going to take care of the paintings after all. This plan never materialized. Records show the paintings going into storage, but after that, the trail vanishes. No museum, no showings, and no paper trail of a sale. For all anyone knew, it was still in Saito's private storage. Two years later, in 1993, Saito was arrested for several charges of bribery. His fortune was suddenly under fire. Meanwhile, the 90s art market was not doing as well as in the 80s, especially in Japan, where plenty of businessmen like Saito had been buying art at tremendous cost and in large quantities in the late 80s and early 90s. The mid-90s saw a decrease in economic prosperity and a freeze on purchases. Not everyone who purchased art could keep up with the taxes either, leading to sales of artwork often originally acquired at highly inflated prices. While there are no sales records of Portrait of Dr. Gachet, the second painting by Renoir was sold privately to pay back some of Saito's debts during this period. Then, in 1996, Saito passed away from a stroke. While there are no public records of his cremation or burial, cremation is customary in Japan. And with no accounts to the contrary, it's possible that the portrait of Dr. Gachet went with him. That's not the only place the painting could have ended up, though. By 1996, the art market was picking back up, but the Japanese property market bubble burst, and the ensuing economic downturn meant many previously wealthy people were selling off their artwork for much less than they purchased it. This had already happened to Saito's Renoir painting. For the Japanese, this was a very culturally shameful way to part with artwork, so many of these owners conducted the business in secret through a proxy, keeping their names and the painting's identities as private as possible. For example, it's not known publicly who owns the Renoir, just that it was purchased. At the same time, several anonymous European buyers were picking up famous works returning to the market from Japan. It's very possible Saito's Van Gogh, now worth a fraction of what it was before, was sold anonymously to anonymous buyers. The strange part is, that was still over 20 years ago. Typically, those high enough in the art trade are able to find the owners of these paintings, even if their identities are kept secret. There was a record of the Renoir changing hands, even if the owner is anonymous. Why, then, do we have no information on the Van Gogh? Even the top art communities in the world haven't been able to locate this painting. In 1999, the Metropolitan Museum of Art was launching a large Van Gogh exhibit, and they wanted to include Portrait of Dr. Gachet. Museum curators went through their normal channels, contacting the auction house and other art dealers to find the current owner of the painting. All the records still indicated that Saito was the last owner. No one knew where it was, or if they did, they weren't telling. This was incredibly strange for a painting this famous that had shown so many times throughout the years. It didn't make sense. With the trail growing cold, the 1991 cremation comet resurfaced. Curators began to fear the worst. Saito died in 1996, and no one had seen the painting since. Had he really had it cremated with him? 
While plenty of newspapers reported the original cremation comment in 1991, no one reported whether or not Saito was actually cremated. Certainly destroying a world-famous Van Gogh was insane. No one would do something that extreme. But almost 15 years passed with no mention. The cremation possibility seemed more and more likely. There's always the chance the owner is just a very well-kept secret. In a 2013 article, Christie's Auction House claimed that it does in fact know the owner and location of the painting, but that they must protect their client's identity. The painting was mentioned as a general example, however, not as a specific case. The example went on to say that unless a buyer wanted to buy, a seller wanted to sell, and both of them wanted the information to be public, we wouldn't ever know the painting changed hands. Still, the art world is changing. New buyers are trending towards showing off their artwork instead of storing it, a trend that seems to flip back and forth every few decades. Some believe it's only a matter of time before this masterpiece resurfaces. Still, it's been almost 30 years since this painting was seen by the public, and even prestigious internationally acclaimed museums are having trouble tracking it down. Could it really belong to a private collection? Or was this painting actually destroyed per Saito's wishes? Here's what we think happened. It's absolutely possible Mr. Saito initially meant his cremation comment in earnest. He was a vain man who liked to show off and who enjoyed owning rare, one-of-a-kind items. Burning it would show his incredible opulence and prevent anyone else from ever owning the painting. To this end, we can't rule out that he really did have the painting burned with him, especially since we can't actually prove where it is or verifiably account for anyone seeing it since the mid-90s. However, if the painting really was burned, it's strange that Mr. Saito didn't publicize that, since his main motivations seemed to be attention. We think if he had gone through with this, he would have made a big deal out of it, or someone would have reported that it was in his will. At the very least, we think someone from the cremation services would have leaked the information. No further information has surfaced about the cremation directive since the original comment. Even if he initially did intend to burn the piece, his financial downfall and apparently genuine love of Van Gogh's work, coupled with a lack of record on it burning or being willed to burn, also make this outcome seem unlikely. Though that may just be wishful thinking. If the painting is missing, we could recover it. If it's burned, there's no getting it back. Still, we think the real answer lies somewhere in Saito's lost economic status. We don't know how much he was hurting for money, but it was typical during the Japanese financial downturn for formerly well-off businessmen to have to sell off artwork and other property to pay their bills. We know Saito had this forced on him with the Renoir, so it's not a huge stretch that the Van Gogh would have been sold as well, especially if this was done by proxy while Saito was in jail. Having to sell off artwork was culturally shameful, leading to many of these deals to be conducted in secret. Saito certainly didn't lack ego, so it would fit that he would want to hide the shame of losing his beloved world-famous artwork. His family may have shared this shame, leading them to also keep quiet about the sale. Of course, because of the lack of record, there's also always a chance the piece was stolen, especially after his death. 
If his art dealer, children, storage workers, or anyone else close to the estate knew about the piece and knew it hadn't been well documented, it would have been fairly easy to lift it. They also could have kept the painting altogether, never selling it off at all. What wouldn't have been easy was hiding it, since it's such an iconic piece. Any sale, or really any showing, would alert the art world, which has been looking for the painting for 30 years now. It's still possible it was stolen and then either kept or sold on the black market, as the owner would then be motivated to hide it. It's also possible his family faked a sale to avoid taxes, but kept the painting. Still, this would be hard to pull off and harder to pull off with no current records. What we think is more likely is that Saito's estate sold it off to a private buyer. If that buyer wanted to remain anonymous, which was typical of European buyers of Japanese-owned art in the 90s, it would explain the lack of paper trail and why the painting hasn't shown up. It would be a good reason for those up in the art dealing business to play dumb and protect the records as well. It's also possible that the buyer was sensitive to a money trail if that money wasn't entirely clean, which is not uncommon in the high art world. Since ownership privacy in general is common in Europe, Russia, and the Middle East, it's likely the new buyer wanted to remain out of the limelight regardless of reason. It's perfectly feasible that the painting is sitting in a private vault somewhere, waiting for Christie's to bring the right offer, or for its current owner to pass on. It's extremely strange that even a major museum couldn't locate the painting for loan, but if the new buyer is that private, it's still not impossible for this to happen. We think that with enough time, the painting will return to market. But it's always possible that Saito really did have the painting burned because no one can definitively confirm where it is. We can't rule out that it was truly lost. Perhaps that makes it the perfect Van Gogh piece. Dark, melancholy, and shrouded in mystery. The truth just out of reach, but all the tragedy there on the surface to see. Well, to see in reproductions. For now, this painting is still gone. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you want to find more episodes or any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Everyone always asks how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, or at ParCast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Taylor Cleland and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>